Continuing now, though, turn with me, please, to the book of Exodus, chapter 8. We're up to Exodus, chapter 8. Verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs, and the Nile will swarm with frogs, which will come and go into your house, and into your bedroom, and on your bed, and into the house of your servants, and on your people, and into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. So the frogs will become upon you, and your people, and all of your servants. That is a plague of frogs. Then the Lord <clears throat> said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers and over the streams, that is canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians of Pharaoh, again, prefiguring the Antichrist and false prophet and so forth, did the same thing with their secret arts, that is their demonic occult powers making frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he remove the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. And it replaced things that transpired before already in this sorry saga. Moses said to Pharaoh, The honor is yours to tell me. When shall I entreat for you? and your servants and your people, that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses, that they may be left only in the Nile. Then he said, tomorrow. So he said, may it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Now again, this is a confrontation between the beliefs of the Egyptians with the god Ra, with various other Egyptian deities, as we'll see, and the belief in divine sonship of Pharaoh himself. So he's not just saying, let us go to worship our God. He's saying that you may know that your gods are false and our God is the true one. There's no one like our God. And the frogs will depart from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They will be left only in the Nile. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord, concerning the frogs which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, the courts, and the fields in heaps, and the land became foul, literally stinking, foul-smelling. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. He plays the same old game. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, this is a bit complicated to translate. The word here is kinim, kinim, and it is the modern Hebrew word for lice, for lice. And the magicians tried, that is Pharaoh's magicians, they tried, or the soothsaying priests, they tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. 
So there were gnats on man and beast. Notice now there were miracles that God did that Pharaoh's magicians could not counterfeit. Their powers or their capacity to imitate or to mimic began to run out. Their powers and capacity to mimic began to run out. The occult by demonic power will always be able to counterfeit, mimic, imitate the true works of God to a degree when God so allows it. But it has its limits. Their power will eventually run out. God will do things through his people that Satan cannot do through the practices of occult arts, that is, witchcraft, makshafut, etc. Let's continue looking. Verse 19, and then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Notice, it would imply that when Pharaoh's magicians could counterfeit the miracles of Moses and Aaron and appear to do the same things, that gave Pharaoh a confidence. But even once they couldn't do that anymore, he still persisted. That is how hardened his heart was. Bearing in mind, of course, he's a type of the Antichrist. Now, this foreshadows things that are going to happen with the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. I mentioned that only in passing. Satan will, by demonic power, do all kinds of things. The Antichrist and false prophet will do all kinds of things. But there will be a limit to their power. Let us look. They knew it was the finger of God in verse 19. Now the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh as he comes out of the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of insects on you. That is arov, arov. And it's one of the judgments counted out with the spilling out of the wine in the Paschal Seder to this day. Arov. This is what's going to happen. As he comes, <clears throat> let my people go. If you do not, I will send swarms of insects on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of insects and also the ground in which they dwell. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people are living, so that no swarms of insects will be there, in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. And I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall occur. Mark verses 22 and 23 will be coming back to them. They have an important prophetic meaning for the future. Then the Lord did so, and there came great swarms of insects into the house of Pharaoh and the house of his servants, and the land was laid waste because of the swarms of insects in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. In other words, don't leave Egypt, stay here and do it. He tries to negotiate. He tries to get them to make concessions. Don't leave the land. Just stay here and do it. But Moses said, it's not right to do so. 
And again, this repeats something that we'd already encountered. Okay. Uh, if we sacrifice to the Lord our God, what is an abomination to the Egyptians? If we sacrifice what's an abomination to them before their eyes, will they then not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commanded. Now notice the Lord is no longer saying three days. God is now saying, let my people go. There is a slight suggestion that even Moses and Aaron couldn't grasp the full depths of what God was doing as fast as he was doing it. I'm going out from you, and I shall make supplication to the Lord that the swarms of insects may depart from Pharaoh and his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only do not let Pharaoh deal deceitfully again in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Repeatedly, the Pharaoh said, just stop the plague and I'll do this. Just stop the plague and I'll do this. Just stop the plague and I'll do it. But he doesn't. He never changes his mind. He just lies. The devil will always lie. You can never negotiate with him or believe what he says. But God plays him. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of insects from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from the people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh's hardened his heart, this time also, and he did not let the people go. The plague of frogs, Svardaya, again, still commemorated in the Paschal Seder, Svardaya. Frogs were representations of the Egyptian goddess Heket, Heket. She was always pictured with a female human body, but the head of a frog. Hence, frogs were considered sacred, something like cows in Hinduism. They were considered sacred. And the fact that they were amphibians, they can live on both land and sea, was seen as something of a supernatural property that in their superstition lent them to believe that these were supernatural creatures of some kind but they lived in the Nile, in canals. They lived in tributaries of the Nile. They lived in streams and swamps and things of this nature. They did not saturate the land. They were basically aquatic, even though they were amphibians, okay? They were associated with the goddess Heket, Heket. Now we know that there are Nile River toads, Nile River toads species of frog with a certain kind of skin, and they are poisonous. They won't kill you people by handling them, but if they are eaten, they are certainly lethal, and they're all over the place. Well, these are the frogs. They believed them to be sacred, and they associated it with the worship of Heket. They were sort of like to the ancient Egyptians what Cows are the fundamentalist Hindus, okay? They came out and they went all over. Now remember, these things are not just past history. They have a future prophetic meaning. There will be a salvation of the true believers of rescue, but there will also be a final salvation of Israel and the Jews, that is those who survive 
the final seven years of history. Turn with me, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 16. The book of Revelation, chapter 16. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, in verse 13, that is Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, that is the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So you have the diabolical trinity, the satanic trinity, the devil, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, a counterfeit of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay. And out of the mouth of the beast, of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of the almighty, such it is. Notice that God makes use of things that are in opposition to him for his purposes. Even Satan must ultimately do God's will. These frogs represented the worship of a demonic female pagan deity, Hecate. Yet God uses them as instruments of judgment. God will use the demonic things that people go into to bring judgment on them. We see this in Romans 1 with homosexuality. Um, and we see the reduced longevity, life expectancy, high suicide rate, and so forth of transgender people and things of this nature, as we call them, okay? Uh, these things are demonic, yet they still become instruments of God's judgment. He allows it. This is what you want. This is what you can have. You want to worship Hecate instead of the true God? Here, worship Hecate. You can have it. God uses the sin that people are into and the demonic powers on back of that sin as instruments of judgment on them. They reap what they sow. They reap what they sow. Okay. And here it becomes the case of the frogs. In the future, these frogs will be released. They will have tremendous, again, they're, they're figurative of that which is somehow false prophecy. False prophecy. Um, they are going to go out and they're going to be sent to the rulers of the world, the kings of the earth, and they will have a capacity to do signs. Um, and their purpose will be to gather people for the final coming conflict. That is what will be the battle of Armageddon. That is what will be the battle of Armageddon. Thus, we continue to read in, in this chapter that they gather them together and they gather them together in the place which in Hebrew is called Har Megiddon. When we get Armageddon, it literally means the Mount of Megiddo. Satan is going to use these supernatural demonic powers that can perform the miracles by demonic power and that can manipulate and deceive the kings of the earth by demonic power into coming to a standoff battle with the Lord. They will assemble in Megiddo, where the penultimate conflict will take place, but the final showdown, of course, takes place in the Valley of Jehoshaphat in Jerusalem. That is the northern orifice of the Kidron. But 
that's what's happening. You see the release of the frogs again. The frogs are coming again. Last week we saw the blood on the water. Now we see the frogs are coming again. This is what you want? You want to reject the true God? You want to go after other gods? Go ahead. They become instruments of judgment that God uses to draw them into his judgment. Well, it happens. It happens, and Pharaoh again plays his usual game. He makes a promise. His magicians are able to do the same thing. But once more, he breaks his word. And as soon as there's notice now, the, the frogs, the, the, the corpses, the bodies, the remains of the frogs were, were in heaps all over the place. There were heaps of them that were decaying in, in, in the uh, tropical heat, semi-tropical heat. And they, they were putrid. They were foul-smelling. It was this, the stench of, of, of this. Now, to them, this would have represented a judgment on their religious beliefs. It would have been a judgment on their religious beliefs. Pharaoh's magicians would even know there was a such thing as the finger of the one true God. But this happened, and it represents a judgment on the worship of Heket. Heket. Most of these judgments represent a kind of judgment on one of the pagan idol deities, the demonic deities of the Egyptians in their um, worship system, in their false religious system. Okay. Pharaoh sees it, but once again, he hardens his heart. Then the Lord says to Moses, stretch out your staff, same staff, and strike the dust of the earth that it may become gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, they did so, and Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and on beast. Now, these gnats were flying creatures. They were flying creatures. Jesus made a reference to gnats, small flying creatures, in the gospel, straining a gnat, swallowing a camel. They get into the food, they get into the grain, vegetable supplies, and so forth. These were gnats, but they could fly. Now, however, they went all over the place. They went all over the place and became an unmanageable nuisance. Now, the, the term here, arav, for these swarms, which we translate gnats, it could... Arav could also be a term for beasts in some contexts, but it means swarms of flying insects, swarms of flying insects. Although the word zvub, fly, does not appear in the chapter, some people or some translators translate it as flies. Now, flies could be part of the arov. They could be one of the species in the arov. We talk about flies and our teaching on Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies. When we had a recorded teaching on the Morio website, it goes back to First Kings, where you have Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies, and Jesus says, Seven demons come back 
Well, flies are pictures of demons. Uh, again, I point you to the teaching. They could be one of the species involved in the Arov. The suggestion is it is several species, several species of flying pests. Uh, Arov, gnats, uh, kinim, of a flying kinim, uh, zvuvim, but not, not locusts, not locusts. Anyway, just as the frogs were associated with the worship of the god Heket, gnats were associated with the god Kefer, Kefer. And because they came out in the morning, they were associated with Kefer, the morning god, the morning god, the god of the rising sun was Kefer in Egyptian mythology. Kefer was the god of the rising sun. Now again, Moses tells us these other gods are demons. What we see here is the same pattern. It is God's judgment on their religion. The only way they could have any relief, any alleviation of what the Arov were doing was for the Arov Arovim to die, to die. Uh, but it would be seen as a judgment on their gods, on their religious beliefs, on their demonic false religious system, on their, their, their pagan superstitions. It would be a judgment, a judgment on Heket, and now a judgment on Kefer. So the conflict you are seeing here is not simply the conflict between Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron, or Pharaoh's magicians and Moses and Aaron. Neither is it a conflict between the Israelites, the Hebrews, and the Egyptians. It is a conflict between the true God and the false demon gods of Egypt, the false demon gods of Egypt. Let us bear this in mind. Paul tells us we struggle not against flesh and blood. These things you see today, where they're firing teachers from, for refusing to refer to males as females and females as males, and to teach it to little kids, and teachers are losing their jobs. This gets me very angry. And I know the judgment of God is going to come on these educational bureaucrats and teachers unions for doing these things, for sure. But they are not the real enemy. They are the stooges of the demonic. They are the stooges of the demonic. We struggle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, these powers of darkness in the high places. Well, Moses understood that. It was not just between him and Pharaoh, or him and Aaron and, and Pharaoh and his magicians, Jonathan Jambres. It was not between the Hebrews and the Egyptians. Those were ramifications, expressions, of the real conflict, which was between the one true God and the demonic. Paganism, superstition, idolatry, false belief. We see this with Hecate worship, then we see it in Kefer worship. But when these things come into play again in the book of Revelation, it'll be between the worship of God and Satan, straight out, straight out.
Let's look. We see these things recounted in Psalm 78, verse 45, and in Psalm 105, verse 30. God kept pointing the Hebrews back to these things, even in the times of David. He's saying, look, this is what I did. Remember, I am the one true God. Ani Elohecha. Look, please, to Psalm 78, verse 45. He sent among them swarms of flies, which devoured them, and frogs, which destroyed them. Oh, boy. He said, remember it. We see in Psalm 105, verse 30, their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chamber of the king. And he spoke, and there came a swarm of flies and gnats. Notice the mixture. That's Adov. That's Adov. And he gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. Now, again, this is exactly what we see happening in the book of Revelation. It takes place particularly in the seventh trumpet. And again, it comes back even worse in the seventh vial, the seventh vial and the seven vials of wrath. You see those same things occurring. Look with me, please, to the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 7. I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. And when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about a half hour. A very mysterious verse. And I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and seven trumpets were given them. But before they blew the trumpets, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him that he might add it to the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer, filled it with fire of the altar, and threw it to earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and earthquakes, okay? And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. And the first sounded it, and the first thing that comes is hail and fire. Hail and fire. Now, let's understand this. Incense represents the prayer of the saints in both Revelation and Ezekiel, okay? We see the prayers of the martyred saints calling out for God's vengeance on the Antichrist and false prophet and their cohorts in the book of Revelation, when the saints are crying out from under the altar, asking God to avenge them. In precatory prayers, they were yelling to God, Please avenge us what these people have done to us because we believe in you. And, and then they're asking. This is the prayer of the saints, and it is represented by incense. Represented by incense. In Revelation 6, these martyrs, they're calling out. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood? A time will come 
when that incense will be gathered from the incense of the flame of the altar of God and be thrown down to the earth in judgment. Thrown down to the earth in judgment. This is imprecatory prayer. Imprecatory prayer. We need to pray that God will forgive our enemies, that they will repent. But if they don't, and when they persist in it the way Pharaoh did, we see imprecatory prayer. David prayed imprecatory prayers. There are Christians who make the mistake of thinking there is no place for imprecatory prayer in the New Testament uh, because of a misunderstanding of grace. This is nonsense. These saints are pleading with God to avenge them. The New Testament says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. What did Paul say? Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him. We're going to see this. We're going to see God's judgment on false and backslidden brethren. We're going to see God's judgment on those who persecute the church, the true church. And we're going to see God's judgment on the, on the enemies of the believers. But we're going to see God's judgment ultimately on the enemies of Israel. All of whom are actually, in the final analysis, the enemies of God himself. The incense is thrown down. And notice, the peals of thunder, the lightning, and then comes earthquake and hail. Look with me, please, to the book of Revelation chapter 16. What we see in the seventh trumpet, what do we see in the seventh vial or bowl of wrath? Verse 18, lightning, sounds and peals of thunder, great earthquake, such as not been seen since man came to be upon the earth. It's going to be worse than the previous one of the seals. Uh, so great an earthquake was it and so mighty. But then verse 21, huge hailstones. The same judgments happen again and again, only each time around, they, they get worse. They get worse. Well, this is exactly what we see in Exodus. The judgments get progressively worse, but Pharaoh still hardens his heart. Now, we have to understand this pattern in order to understand what is going to happen in the future and to a degree what is happening already. Look with me, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 9. Verse 21. And they did not repent of their murders, or their sorceries, or their immorality, nor of their thefts. And the murders were the murdering of believers. They didn't repent of it. Pharaoh wouldn't repent. The judgments kept coming. Didn't matter. Doesn't matter. They don't repent. They won't repent. Well, let's go further. Now, where it says he will make a division in chapter 8, that God will make this division in the land, the land where the Hebrews live and the land where the Egyptians live. Notice 
the swarms with insects will not be there in verse 22. And I will put a division between my people and your people in verse 23. That word for division in Hebrew is not division as in splitting. It is ransom, ransom. That which God has ransomed will be divided from that which he has not. Those whom he has ransomed will be ransomed and separated from those who are not ransomed. Now notice this. As the judgments increase, the Hebrews are there, but they are not affected by it. They are not affected by these Arov or Arovim. They're not affected by it. Faithful believers will enter the tribulation. After the tribulation of those days, not to be confused with after the wrath, we're talking about something during the seven years, not after it, something after the first half, but not, not at the first half, but not long after it. We see something. God's people are removed for sure, but they're still there. They're there for the first six seal judgments. They're there for the first six seal judgments. And then, of course, there's Israel and anyone coming to faith during that terrible time afterwards. But notice, they go in it. We have to understand that although the Lord will allow us to enter the tribulation, his judgments will target the world, the followers of Antichrist and false prophet. Somehow, he will supernaturally give his own people grace, as it were, some kind of protection, as it were, some kind of protection. I'm not saying that believers will not be affected by the tribulation. They'll certainly be affected by persecution. But it is to say they will not be defected in the way or to the degree that the enemies of God will. The Lord knows how to take care of his people. The great swarms came into the house even of Pharaoh. Everything was laid to waste. Everything. The Arov were devouring and destroying food supplies, everything. You couldn't sleep in your bed. Your children couldn't sleep. Pharaoh knows he has to do something. His magicians admit to him, now we've been outgunned by the finger of God. Now notice that term, the finger of God. We have a teaching called when God writes. Wait and found wanting. Many, many take a lufarsin in the book of Daniel. Or when God wrote the Decalogue. And Israel broke it. Moses smashed the Ten Commandments, and God wrote it again. When Jesus wrote on John 8 on the ground, the finger of God, the finger of God, what God has written, what God has written. Satan could never, ever, ever 
undo, nullify, or negate what God has written. He can try to counterfeit what God has written with something called the pseudologon, a false word of God. But ultimately, it won't hold up. It won't hold up. The Koran cannot hold up. It can't. Who's reading the Koran? Do you really believe that the sun gets tired every night and sets into a muddy pit? Um, do you think that's what happens? Uh, the Koran confuses Miriam, Mary, the mother of Jesus, with Miriam, the sister of Moses, even though they lived at least 13 centuries apart. It's a crazy, it can't hold up. You can make a counterfeit of it, but when you put it next to the real thing, it's not going to be able to hold up. It doesn't stand up to scripture. Well, the Book of Mormons can't either. A papal encyclical can't either. The Tibetan Book of the Dead can't either. The Bhagavad Gita can't either. The Aquarian Bible can't either. None of these things can. It's the finger of God. And the magicians of Pharaoh, the practitioners of the occult, will ultimately know it and be forced to face it. Just like Simon Magnus. He knew the apostles had a power that they didn't. But let's continue. He tries to negotiate. No sacrifice here. And then he goes back to the three days in the wilderness. Now notice God didn't say three days in the wilderness. That was Pharaoh trying to renegotiate. Moses tells him, you keep deceiving us. You keep telling us to do this, and we do it, and then you don't keep your word. Well, once again, not unexpectedly, Pharaoh didn't keep his word. Moses made supplication. The Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms. But Pharaoh hardened his heart, this time also, and he did not let go. This begins to bring the judgments on the cattle, the boils that also come in the book of Revelation, and the hail in chapter 9. I'm reluctant to go into chapter 9 because we would take too long doing it. I'd rather just hold off and recount what we've looked at thus far. Remember, the conflicts were not just between the Hebrews and the Egyptians. It was between the God of the Hebrews and the gods and goddesses of the Egyptians. Each judgment had a specific meaning in God laying waste the gods of the Egyptians. Also, God would use their false beliefs as a judgment on them. He would use their false beliefs as a judgment on them. Um, look at what happened in the 1980s. When Ayatollah Khomeini came to power following the Shah and Saddam Hussein was still alive then. What was the costliest 
bloodiest war. They killed the most people since the Second World War. It's not the Ukraine. It's not Vietnam. It's none of that. It was the war between Iran and Iraq. Sunni Muslims and Shia Muslims, both of them believing the Quran. And they believed in the Quran doctrine of shahadi, shahadi. The only way to have the assurance of salvation in Islam is to die in a jihad. So they, Muslims, declared jihad on each other. And they sent people in human wave attacks. How many people died in that war between Iran and Iraq? You had two countries determined to destroy Israel. God turns them against each other. 1.5 million Muslims murdered by other Muslims. How did the judgment of God engineer that to come about? through their own false religion, through their own belief system, through the doctrine of shahadi. And none of them got their 70 virgins. There it is. Quite a situation. These principles that we see in the book of Exodus are not ancient. They are both ancient and contemporary and they are future. We must understand these patterns to understand the patterns we see in the book of Revelation. We look at the past. We look at the present. We look at the future. Thank you so much for listening. God bless. Hope you can join us next Thursday. We'll continue with chapter nine. The Bible study is going to have to be a bit longer next week. So bear with us.